Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi there, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, from the Presidential Library in Hyde Park, New York, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Not every U.S. president has a library, and the FDR library is not only the first of its kind, but the only one opened while the president was actually still president, way back in 1941. An amazing collection of history, lessons learned, lessons applied, and of course, great storytelling. I sat down with Bill Harris, who runs the library, for a short course in that remarkable history. Then we'll move to the CIA. No, not America's super secret intelligence agency, but the one located nearby the library, the other CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, which was founded back in 1946, even before the other CIA became the CIA most people think they know. Director Tim Ryan is in charge of this CIA secrets. And then, legendary NBC correspondent and creator of the American story on the Today Show and master storyteller Bob Dotson. He joins me to talk about storytelling and history, what's really important and who's really important. He's got a new book out as well, Make It Memorable. And, spoiler alert, he does. First up, from the FDR Library, Bill Harris. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, 
Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Bill Harris, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me today. How many presidential libraries are there? Oh, my. You're asking me a numbers question right off the bat. Since Herbert Hoover, FDR was the first presidential library, but Herbert Hoover Forward has a presidential library. So there's, there's Hoover, there's, there's Roosevelt, there's Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. Everyone. There's Truman. Right? All the way up through Obama, which hasn't opened yet. Right. So, what, nine or ten of them? Mm, Thirteen, I think. Thirteen, oh my goodness. And you know what I found interesting? Is if you go to the uh, the Nixon Presidential Library, they even have exhibits on Watergate. Yes, they do. In fact, I was involved in the bringing that private museum into the National Archives in my Washington years. I'm very familiar with the Nixon Library. <laughs> and amazing place. The George W. Bush Presidential Library on the campus of SMU in Dallas. Amazing place. It is. It's beautiful. I was fortunate enough to be involved in the establishment of that one as well. See, we're, we're going to do your entire life story now. <laughs> and then out in California, the Reagan Library. Beautiful. Um, well, they have actually the 707. Air Force One is in the building. That's right. And uh, on a permanent static display. When he was president, I had the opportunity to fly with him on Air Force oh, One. Fascinating. And so when I went back to visit the, you know, the library and the museum, I asked the curators there if they could do me a favor. And they did. They let me back in the plane. Oh, nice. So I could sit in my original seat and take a picture. <laughs> I mean, I know it sounds hokey, but I had to do it. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. This was really the first presidential Absolutely. library. And it was, of course, the first president, uh, not of course, it was the first presidential library that opened while the president was still president. It's actually the only presidential library that opened while the president was president. And uh, we don't have an Oval Office because we don't need one. We've got the office he actually worked in while president here at the library and gave radio addresses from, right in the building down the hall from my office. That's right. Radio like we're doing today. Absolutely. Bigger microphones, though. <laughs> but the CBS logo is on them just as well. Oh, I love it. I love it. Uh but this is his home as well. Correct. What makes this place this, um, even doubly uh, more special is that he was born and raised here, and the site of the library is carved out that he picked the measurements for the 16 acres uh, that was handed over to the National Archives in 1940. So we were very much a part of his, his, uh, his property and his um, whole personal experience. I think it's an understatement that Roosevelt had a sense of history. Oh, it is. He had a tremendous sense not only of history, but also as presidents tend to, of his place in that history and of, um, I would say, the period of time. He recognized that they were extraordinary and that it would be uh, important to be able to study that. One of the fascinating things to me, not about American history or World War II or the New Deal or anything he's associated with, is how the news media was basically gagged on his on his physical disability. I would say maybe not as much gagged as uh, participatory in uh, the... Yes, I would say that it was a mutual relationship of... um, If you wanted access to the president, you had to play along. Well, you did play along. That's absolutely right. And, of course, we can debate that. We do here today about... Have you ever found photographs of him actually in the wheelchair? Oh, absolutely. There's not that many, but we certainly have some. 
You have his car on the, on the premises here, too. We do, and I would say in terms of the wheelchair, he didn't like being in the wheelchair. The wheelchair was oh, generally know that, yeah. Yeah, just moving him from one place to another so he could be transferred to a chair such as in his office. But we do have his car, especially outfitted Ford. Right, with hand controls for the accelerator and the brakes? And That's right, as well as a device that um, dispensed a, a lit cigarette. A lit cigarette? A lit cigarette. Wow, an invention that thankfully did not catch on. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> When people come to this library, what's the thing that surprises them the most? I think what does surprise them is how interwoven it is to the physical landscape and the personal life story of the president. Fifty yards from the library is the home he was born and raised in, um, that his mother lived in until 1941. Uh, Twenty-five yards uh, away from our building is his gravesite and Mrs. Roosevelt's. Uh, in his mother's rose garden. We are surrounded by and a part of the land that he played on as a child, that he loved as an adult, and that he tended uh, with a real thought about the environment and the physical spaces. And then there's, of course, Eleanor Roosevelt. Yes, absolutely. She, you know, spent her uh, married life here, but also um, a home of her own was constructed about two miles to the east here on what was a state property. The That's estate. Valkill? That's Valkill. And uh, so she spent a great deal of time there. And after the president's death, once the home had been turned over to the National Park Service in 1946, uh, she made her permanent residence other than an apartment in New York City here. You know, you show a movie in the auditorium here, and I saw it today. And what I was struck by, and, and, and people don't remember Eleanor Roosevelt's role in civil rights. Oh, well, uh, we have a, a special exhibit running right now that addresses just that. She was very forward-thinking in her um, approach to social justice and her recognition of each individual's human dignity. And it, it is very contemporary, her views and approach, and they were, frankly, much farther ahead than her husband or the administrations. I mean, the Ku Klux Klan had a bounty on her head. Marian Anderson was going to sing at the Daughters of the American Revolution, and they banned her from it. And what did Eleanor Roosevelt do? This is classic. It's really quite remarkable. She resigned her membership in the Daughters of the American Revolution. And what year was this? 1939. I mean, think about that. Yes, it's, it's remarkable. In a very public gesture, it actually very polite but pointed public ge gesture. And then... She arranged to have Marian Anderson uh, uh, pr perform a concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. So drawing even more attention, not only to the fact that the DAR ran a segregated facility, but that uh, the, that talent and her dignity transcended the, the, the narrow and limited views of, of the time. I mean, given that it was 1939 for one, and America's political stature at that time, I'm amazed that even Eleanor could pull that off. It is remarkable, and you see constantly through the through the records, through her radio. Uh, she had multiple radio programs, at the one on CBS. In fact. She wrote a weekly column. And she wrote a weekly newspaper column. And you see her advocating, meeting with people, and advocating far beyond what the administration was prepared to do politically. Comfortable. That's absolutely right. Or uncomfortable. Yes. Exactly. The exhibits that you have here, it's sort of like... You know, the Reagan Library has an exhibits every once in a while on Iran-Contra. Uh, you know, George W. Bush on Iran and Iraq. And, and all the stuff that you would think is like, you know, off limits. Yeah. But we're actually taking a look at our own history. It's really important that we do that. The way I, I uh, like to frame it is we had the courage to overcome the Great Depression as a nation 
and to defeat fascism around the world during World War II. So surely we have the strength of character to explore the really tough aspects of our American history and, and take a hard look at ourselves and what our own roles were and learn from it and grow, not to tear things down, but to frankly acknowledge the patriotic American citizens who fought for and wanted their place in our society. And of course, the, the little known personal stories as well. Absolutely, because those personal stories, I think, are what really connect us to the, the past. The past is much more real when, when you realize that we're just part of a long continuum of it. So you see this transformation over time, the transition on different paths of the president and the first lady, just taking questions of civil rights and racial justice. They're on different paths, and they're progressing at different speeds and in different ways, but you're seeing this arc of people who are changing. And that means if, if these historical figures were human enough to make mistakes, acknowledge them, and grow and change over time, then we were exactly the same way. You know, I, did, I was not alive at that point when he was doing his fireside chats, mm -hmm. but my parents would tell me, that they would gather around the radio. I mean, everybody would gather around the radio as a family unit to listen to the father figure, otherwise known as the President of the United States. Yes, think about it in, in 1933 terms. Um, of course, Pre President Hoover had spoken on the radio, but not in a way that would connect, in a much more formalized uh, right. way of giving speeches. When the President sat down to speak with people uh, uh, over the radio, which was the only national, you know, immediately available public um, um, communication source outside of newspapers. He did so in a way that was very human. He did not speak down to people. He spoke to people to include them in issues, to, to include them in, in uh, gaining understanding of really complex things like the American banking system, which was a, in By a state By the way, we're collapse. still confused about that. <laughs> Absolutely. He sat down, though, and, and was able to talk to people about what it meant to them in terms of saving their money, it being in the bank, it being safe, and what the impact of pulling your money out, what the impact of failing banks meant. So the, the ability to connect with people, here, here's a man, we're here on his beautiful estate, uh, a wealthy man uh, from the, the Northeast, and yet he's able through this means of radio to communicate people on a very human level. And when you think of the man he succeeded, Herbert Hoover, who presided over one of the worst economic pieces of history in American history, uh, what he had to do in a short period of time, right? The, the, the New Deal, the Tennessee Valley Authority, all the dam construction, all that stuff happened because he had people behind him to say, okay, we'll do it. I think what's remarkable and that what people forget um, or, or maybe aren't aware of anymore is the truly dire nature of the nation in, in the winter and spring of 1933. 50% unemployment. We were nearly in a state of total economic collapse. And what the president had also, which not many presidents have had for a, quite a long time, were, we know. <laughs> were super majorities in both houses of Congress. So he came in with a clear mandate to um, tackle, experiment, try out new things, to try to effect some sort of change. And, and they just, they did exactly that. Bold experimentation. My thanks to Bill. Not far from the FDR library is another great destination in the Hudson Valley, the CIA. No cloak and dagger here, but knives are often involved. It's the other CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, and Tim Ryan stops by to reveal some of its very cool secrets. Okay, it's time to commit. 
2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome, sir. Peter, it's great to be here. I mean, explain the CIA because... No, no, not the CIA in Langley. <laughs> explain the CIA in Hyde Park. Well, you know, the first thing is we were first. So uh, my CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, was founded in 1946. Central Intelligence Agency, 1947. After so, the OSS. That's right. Uh, so we're, we're number one in that regard. We were founded um, at uh, Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, by the local restaurant association there, who knew that there, there was going to be a post-war need for... Uh, highly trained people for the burgeoning restaurant industry. And they brought in Mrs. Frances Roth, who was uh, an assistant district attorney in New Haven. Wow. First woman in Connecticut to be... And a, and a foodie. <laughs> a, a foodie. First woman in Connecticut to be admitted to the bar. And she recruited her uh, friend, Catherine Angel, who was the wife of the president of Yale. And so it was for that reason that we opened under the auspices of Yale University in New Haven. And um, with the GI Bill, we educated uh, uh, returning veterans from the Second World War. So that was a wonderful start. We did that until the, the 1970s down there, early 1970s, when we were busting at the seams. We had a 14-acre campus right within the Yale's campus, and we could no longer contain uh, the growth. So we found uh, a wonderful spot here in the Hudson Valley. That's the former monastery. It's the former Jesuit seminary called St. Andrews on Hudson. And so now we have about 180 acres of property there, perched high above the Hudson's Banks. That's part of our alma mater, by the way. Not bad. Yeah. I mean, I should tell my audience that I can't go to a major chef anywhere in the world. At least 80% of them tell me they're CIA alums. That's right. And we're, we're proud of that. And of course, you and I have a lot of mutual friends, too. So you, you know most of the people that I know. Which we just discovered about 10 minutes That's ago. That's right. That's right. But you know, in the hotel industry, people go to Cornell, but in the, in, the, in the food and cooking industry, in the chef industry, it's the CIA. That's right, yeah. What are you teaching there? Well, uh, first of all, uh, what we teach has changed greatly over the years um, to follow pace with the industry. Actually, you know, we've probably led the industry in a lot of things. So we started out as a little training school. It was actually a, a nine-week program just focused on culinary arts. Over the years, we grew to offer associates programs just in the culinary arts. 
Then we added a baking and pastry program. Now uh, we have bachelor's degree programs in those two disciplines, culinary arts, baking and pastry arts, but hospitality management, food science, wines and spirits, and a host of other things. And now master's programs. So you can get a master's degree in hospitality, in business, in entrepreneurship, in wines. And we just announced recently the first ever master's degree in culinary arts and it'll start in september free tuition sponsored by dom perignon the the great champagne house and students while they're studying stop right stop right there i know stop right there <laughs> i can't wait to tell somebody i got a dom perignon scholarship exactly exactly that's exactly <laughs> right so you're a dom perignon scholar and while you're going to uh school the academic uh classes at the cia you're also embedded in Michelin three-star restaurants, either the French Laundry or Single Thread in Healdsburg, California. So phenomenal thing and a real another step forward in the evolution of our profession. Of course, not that long ago, people described American cuisine as what? Hot dogs and hamburgers. That's exactly right. And actually, it was uh, that's the reason I came to the CIA. I graduated from the CIA, but then I came back as but a But you did not have a Dom Perignon scholarship. I did not. <laughs> um, I came back as a faculty member in the early 80s to launch an American cuisine initiative, um, and we opened a restaurant, the American Bounty, which was really at the forefront of that whole American cuisine movement. But you're exactly right. You know, back then when we said that we're going to open an American restaurant, we're going to start to train CIA students in American cuisine. Even Americans within the industry said, "What is that? Hot All dogs they and hamburgers?" Was French. Yeah, I, All they wanted it, was French. French, maybe some Italian, but French was the predominant. That's exactly uh, right. But you flash forward to today, and of course, American cuisine. Nobody's nobody questions it. Nobody's going to challenge it. But um, it was a hard road to hoe there for quite. I mean, a few wherever years. I go in the world now. It's not necessarily Paul Bocuse. Wherever I go in the world now, someone's serving lobster mac and cheese. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, by the way, Paul Bocuse, who was a a good friend and I worked for him uh, in my youth, his son, Jerome, is a graduate of the CIA. And Paul came to uh, the Institute. He knew us well, uh, made a big speech, said, this is the finest school in the world and I'm going to send my son here. And he did. He did. And it sent shockwaves through France. They immediately sent the Minister of Education to the CIA to see what the heck was going on. <laughs> and then they brought us to France to do an assessment. Although I will say, if you go to Lyon, you got to go see his restaurant. You absolutely do. It is. It's a, still there. It sure is. I was there uh, this February. It's recently been refurbished. Jerome Bocuse now runs the operation, and it's fantastic. A must visit. When I was at Newsweek Magazine, this is where I got a chance to date myself. When I was at Newsweek Magazine, we put him on the cover. We put Paul uh, Bocuse 19, on the cover. August of 1976, I have that framed in my office. Yes, sir. That I was a it. huge... Well, if you have the actual magazine, you'll see all my other stories that are in there, too. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I'll never forget. I think that was the first time, at least in my entire tenure at Newsweek, that we put a chef on the cover. It was such a huge deal, and I'll, I'll tell you what... I remember it because I was uh, about to come as a student to the CIA and, um, you know, I had told my parents and they were very supportive of that. But when a chef was then on the cover of Newsweek magazine, I could show that to them and look, mom, dad, look, there's a chef on the cover of Newsweek. Yeah, that never happened. I'm telling you, never. Yeah. Wow. And that turned things around. It sure did. Yeah. 
It was like tantamount to when we put Bruce Springsteen on the cover and nobody had ever heard of him. That's right. The future of rock and roll. That's it. Mm -hmm. Another one. Yeah. So what's the most difficult course? Oh, the most difficult course. Well, that's a, so students at the CIA uh, take not just cooking courses. Uh, they take a bunch of business courses and they also take liberal arts general education courses. So we provide them a well-rounded uh, education. You know, when you talk about business courses. Yeah. This is going to come as no surprise to you. I, like every other male, always had the dream of opening a restaurant, right? I know nothing. So, I, figure, I mean, I know what I like, and I know what food I'd like to serve. I have no idea how to price anything. I have no idea what's a value. I have no idea how to make a profit. I would be bankrupt in 18 minutes. So the business course you're telling them is, here's how much you have to charge for something based on the ingredients, too. And, you know, here's uh, how you have to handle your human resources function and marketing and social media. And, you know, the business has become increasingly complex. And so our curriculum has uh, has kept pace with that. So it depends on the student's disposition. Um, you know, some of the business courses, some of the general ed courses may be more difficult. But within the realm of their discipline, the one that they often find the most difficult is a mandatory course we have in wines because um, you know there's a lot of memorization there's a lot of regions and there's a lot of grape varietals to remember and so on so you know, what kind of hard. scholarship do i get for that <laughs> we do have scholarships uh -oh, here it comes. That, uh, sponsored for, by for who that as, as well um charmer sunbelt group breakthrough beverages wine spectator um, a whole a whole bunch. There's a whole bunch. Are there courses that just I can go and take as a short course? There are. People are very interested in uh, visiting the CIA and experiencing it. Actually, we're one of the largest tourist destinations uh, here in, in Dutchess County. And we encourage everybody to come by. Uh, we have restaurants that the students run as part of their there are studies that, uh, like the Paul Bocuse restaurant, you talked about Paul Bocuse. We have the Caterina de' Medici restaurant, the American Bounty restaurant, the Apple Pie Bakery Cafe, and then we have uh, seasonal pop-ups that happen. And then some people want to um, take courses. So you can take a one-day, a three-day, a five-day boot camp, a total immersion into the to the CIA. They're very, very popular. So you can sign me up for bakery and pastry. Okay, you've, you've got it. <laughs> and uh, like yourself, we have lots of uh, celebrities come and take them. Uh, Ryan Seacrest flies his helicopter in and takes courses at the CIA. Come on. Very, very frequently. He's a great guy, very passionate about food. Reese Witherspoon, Cameron Diaz, Tyra Banks uh, have all taken courses, and many more at the CIA. It's always amazing to me, because you're always learning and you're always developing. What's the one thing, since you offer so many of these different courses, what's the thing that most people, whether they're chefs or restaurateurs, operators, classically forget to do, which makes the difference between success and failure? Well, um, the number one thing would just be season. So the difference between typically a, uh, a novice cook and a, a real professional is the ability to season properly. And uh, so that's the number one thing. You know what? I have one for you. Too many sauces. Well, <laughs> uh, my number one would be, uh, other than seasoning, lack of basic fundamentals. So it makes a big difference if you, if you know uh, your knife cuts, you know how to use a knife. It makes a big difference if you know how to 
sear a piece of meat before you finish roasting it in, in a pan or to glaze a pan to make a delicious sauce. There's basic fundamentals. People oftentimes, they want to, well, in everything. If you want to be a golfer, people want to do fancy things before they learn the basic fundamentals. And the same is true in, in cooking. You have to master the basic fundamentals, and then you can build from there. And so the boot camp classes that we offer really help people to master those basics. Here's what I've mastered. By the way, this is called trial and error. <laughs> um, I used to think I was a pretty good barbecue guy. Then I realized I was making a big mistake. So if you're going to do fish, the fish cooks so fast that if you don't bake it first and then put it on the grill just to finish it off, you have a burned fish on the outside and no fish cooked on the inside. I learned that. Ribs, I literally bake them at 250 degrees for 20 minutes on each side, heavily marinated. I marinate them for three hours first. Then I put them on the grill. Right. right. People just throw stuff on the grill are missing a, a, an essential process. Oftentimes. You know, to your point, we have a book called Low and Slow that's all about uh, that very principle that you just talked about. Yeah, very important. I often you know, categorize a successful chef by how much they, they spend in prep as opposed to just cooking. So probably one of the most off-uttered phrases at the CIA, something that's, that's being talked about day in and day out is mise en place. And that's the French term for everything in its place, the constant state of preparation. And it's a life-changing skill that we teach all of our students. They could come in a disorganized mess, but they're going to walk out and their parents are going to say, what did you do to... Little Peter, <laughs> this is a completely different guy than we said here. And part of the reason why is we, we teach how important that preparation is. Preparation is everything, is one of our big sayings. Now, I'm one of those guys who defines airline food as an oxymoron. <laughs> Have any airline chefs come to work with you? Um, over the years, we've done consulting with, uh, with a lot of the airlines, not post-COVID and having been on airplanes a lot lately um i can tell you they've taken a step back i've i've had just in, they've taken four steps back well, well i was being kind but you, i agree i've 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 had some even even in the business class horrendous food on airlines lately. i mean if you if the only thing you're looking forward to in terms of culinary on an airplane is a biscoff cookie because you know they can't mess that up right. there's something wrong yeah. Oh, uh, maybe you'll agree with me, too, because you travel a lot and are obviously an expert, but even the level of service has uh, gone way, way back. Um, you, could, you could barely get a drink. You can barely get service. It's, you know, when they say safety is our number one priority, um, that's true, but it also means don't expect much in terms of service. <laughs> so they can operate the escape slide, but don't think you can order something medium rare. Yeah, there, there's a big opportunity on airlines today. I, I agree they've stepped back. Exactly. But, I, you know, since you're doing boot camp, you should do an airline boot camp. At one time we did. <laughs> an airline sent their By the way, when you talk about attendance. airline service, you can always start the sentence with the three words, at one time. <laughs> but not now. That's probably true. Unbelievable. Tim Ryan, the president of the Culinary Institute of America, a pleasure to have you with us. And I can't wait to come into the the bakery and and uh, and baking and pastry boot camp. Please come and see us. My thanks to Tim. 
And then, I always enjoy sitting down with Bob Dotson, one of the master storytellers of network news. Many of you might remember Bob for his long-running and now legendary American Story series on the Today Show. He has a new book out, Make It Memorable, which allows us to figure out what story and whose story really makes a difference. Bob, thank you for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Peter. Now, in the 40 years you did that for NBC and the Today Show, did you ever figure out how many miles you did? Well, when I retired, they figured it all up, and they said I had done 4 million actual miles in the United States alone, reporting stories about seemingly ordinary people who had done something to change our lives for the better, mostly. You know, when, when I talk to people, I always, and, and they ask me what, you know, how I approach a story, I always do it the same way, especially if it's a large group of people in the room. I ask one person to come up on stage, and I ask that person to look around the room and take their time. Start at the very left, go all the way to the far right. And when they're done, I say, okay, tell me what, by the way, there are no wrong answers. I say, tell me what you see. Well, I see people. Yep, you do see people. I see men and women. Yep, absolutely correct. And uh, some of them look interesting, right? Absolutely. And some of them are dressed in sweaters or jackets and ties. Very good. That's exactly what you saw. Let me tell you what I see. I see 73 fascinating stories waiting to be told. Now, they may not be all great storytellers, but that doesn't mean they don't have a fascinating story. And that's where, if you're a good journalist, you come in, and you meaning Bob Dotson. That's why that ran for 40 years. Well, I think the most overlooked portion of our society is the rest of us. You know, celebrities, they get all the storytelling they want because they've got organizations that build their stories and put them onto television, radio stations, and what have you. And, you know, certainly, you know, sports figures uh, have their day in the sunshine. But over and over, as I went around the country, I realized there's all kinds of folks, as you just mentioned, who have great stories that are overlooked. And if we just stop and, and ask a question, instead of, you know, jumping out of our cars when we're on vacation and, you know, seeing something and taking a picture of it, I say stop and ask a question. And then maybe somebody will give you an insight into how to tell that story or to show those pictures to your people back home that in such a way that's as memorable to them as it was to you when you took the picture. I'll give you a quick case in point. There was a fellow down in Mississippi who was restoring an old car, and all of the folks in a coffee shop told me I ought to go see him because he's really good with his hands. And by the way, the car is as old as you are. So I said, oh, okay, fine. So I went down the road, and I started to talk to him, and I asked him a non-question question. And what I mean by this, and this is a tip that any of your listeners can use, people always answer questions in three parts. They give you the answer they think you've asked for, then they explain their answer, and if you wait just a little bit and don't jump right in, they figure, well, they haven't explained it well enough, so they go, well, dummy, that's why I killed my wife. <laughs> well, you didn't even know they were a murderer, but now you do. Well, anyway, so I'm down there with this guy who is restoring this old car, and I use that technique on him. And suddenly I, I found this story that was so much more fascinating because it told us uh, how he had changed the world but didn't have time to, to tweet and tell us about it or go on television and run for president or write a book. This is the case. He was an, he was an out-of-work truck driver. He ended up in, in downtown Detroit, 
and he got a job cleaning medical tools at the University of Michigan Med Center. And he watched these students who were trying to learn surgery working on mice back in the early 1960s, and all their tools were too big. Now, this guy was in his 40s. He goes back home after taking some of their books home and reading them for six months, goes into his garage, comes back. He was one of the first people to invent microsurgery tools. Wow. And then, because people didn't know how to use them, they asked him to teach them. So if you graduate next year from the University of Michigan Med Center as the outstanding student, you get your name on a plaque with Jim's face. Jim Crudup is his name. And he never finished high school. Well, now, you know, in the great scope of things, you'd say, well, why would I even bother with a guy like that? You know, he's just, he, his friends say he's good with his hands. Well, because he's restoring a car. And you figure that's all there is to him? Well, there's not. There's this great story. And he, he's, he's just overlooked because he looks like your uncle or he looks like my, my brother or whatever. And yet those people are the reason America is still functioning. <laughs> not necessarily the politicians or the people on Twitter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I, there's, I there's, there's people below that level, you know, we hear every day in the media. And, and these people are, are quietly solving problems that we all face. And your, and your advice is well taken because, you know, when you think about it, you know, we, we, we're, we're sorely lacking uh, the art of conversation these days. And, you know, when people travel, you know, the suggestion that you just gave is exactly what they should embrace every time they're in a new city, a new town, or even if they're returning to a place they think they know. Chances are they don't know enough. And you should stop and yeah. talk to people. And, and, don't yeah. ask, and don't ask questions that could be answered by yes or no. <laughs> Let them fill the silence. Exactly. And all of a sudden, not only do you learn stuff, in many cases, and I'm sure that happened to you in all of your stories, but maybe not all of them, Bob, but many of them, you end up with, with lifelong relationships and friendships that even lead to, to other discoveries and, and an exchange of ideas. It's, it's the best way to do it. Well, you know, most journalists, they, you know, they get their ideas from people who are in, in the field that they're covering. If you're covering politics, politicians feed you stories and that sort of stuff, medicine, certain things, sports. In my case, you're absolutely right. People who I did stories on or met while I was on a story ended up, in some cases, lifelong friends and fed me the kinds of things that, he, that they knew that I would be interested in. And, and they supported my career for years. And that's exactly the case. I mean, there's a little town, for instance, called Phillipsburg, Montana. Some of the people that were out west this summer wandering around, they, they might have bumped into it. It's about 75 miles south of Missoula. It's one of those gorgeous old uh, uh, gold and, and copper towns, mining towns that have been restored. And so it gets a lot of travelers in there. But once again, I didn't want, I, I, I asked a question when I was walking downtown and I said, I noticed when I read a little background of this area that there are 29 ghost towns in this county. How come Phillipsburg's not a ghost town? Well, instead of running around just taking pictures of all the beautiful things downtown, suddenly somebody said, well, you know what we did? There are only 900 people in this town, but we decided we'd start a thrift store. And when we, were, when we were through with something, we'd go down and put it up for sale. And then when we wanted something, we'd go to the thrift store first. And that's how we were able to keep our hospital open. Then we started an opera in the old opera house. Same way. <laughs> and one of those questions that are not a question where the fellow filled in the silence, he said, that's how they saved my life. Well, it turned out his name was Mike Cutler, and he needed a stem cell transplant 
He was superintendent of schools, all right? So he goes off fishing one day. He comes home. There's a tent over Main Street, little, little, little town, beautiful little town. He goes into the tent. They present him with a $40,000 check, right? So you wonder how these people survived. Well, they decided that they all love living in Phillipsburg, but if they didn't take care of each other, there would be no Phillipsburg. A great Isn't story. that the core of America? I mean, really? Well, you would like to think that it is. And by the way, my experience proves your point, too. It's, it's happened to me that way. By the way, we're talking to Bob Dotson, legendary broadcaster, correspondent for NBC News for more than 40 years, and the author or the co-author of Make It Memorable. Of course, the subtitle might seem misleading for a travel show, but it's not. It's the same technique. It's writing and packaging visual news with style. So this is how you travel with style, ladies and gentlemen. You ask questions. You engage in conversation. And you just not only might learn something, you might also teach somebody else. And the next thing you know, this exchange of ideas leads to all sorts of things that you didn't plan. And when you say plan, this is how I deal with travel. My best experiences, Bob, maybe you had the same, is when the plan didn't work. My best experience is when, is when I turned left, when I should have turned right, and it changed everything, right? Sometimes you have to get lost to find yourself. My thanks to Bob, to Bill Harris, and to Tim Ryan. And my thanks to you for listening to this Eye on Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know the drill. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.